KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, nurses have taken the lead in the wave of this year's labor activism. The largest private sector nurses strike in American history took place recently in Minnesota. 15,000 nurses walked off the job for three days. Other nurses have threatened strikes in half a dozen other places. Bryce Covert will report on a key front in the fight for better health care in America. Also, there's a novel about the murder of Emmett Till in Money, Mississippi in 1955, written by a professor at USC that's been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. It's probably the most prestigious literary award in the world, except for the Nobel Prize in Literature. The author is Percival Everett, and the book is called The Trees. We'll talk about it with John Powers. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, of course, we need to talk about the big political scandal in L.A. that burst into public view over the weekend with the release of a secret audio recording that revealed a closed-door meeting where the city council president... Uh, two members of the city council and the county's top labor official discussed race and power in redistricting the city council using what the LA Times called, quote, coarse and at times racist terms. All four of the participants were Latinos. Now, Nuri Martinez has resigned as city council president and has taken a leave of absence from the council. But as of this taping Wednesday afternoon, neither she nor council members Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cedillo uh, have resigned, despite President Biden, among others, calling on them to do so. The conversation, as I say, was about redistricting, about which ethnic groups get what. And as you document in a new piece, wonderful piece for the American Prospect, this is an old standard question in American urban politics. Maybe we should start with Nuri Martinez on tape saying, quote, the Judios, the Jews, quote, cut their deal with South L.A. The L.A. Times described that as a crude remark. But of course, it's no secret what she's talking about 50 years ago. Jews and Blacks formed an alliance to elect the city's first Black mayor, Tom Bradley. Political scientists have written books about this. Remind us about the kind of the background history of ethnic politics in L.A. over the last 50 or so years. Sure. Well, ethnic politics in L.A. pretty much follow the pattern of ethnic politics in all big American cities, uh, which are the politics of ethnic succession. I mean, initially, all city governments were white Protestant men. Then the Irish started inundating East Coast cities in the Great Famine of the 1840s and uh, were generally despised by those white Protestant men and white Protestant women, not that the women were in positions of power, um, formed their own political organizations, the best known of which actually which predates the Irish was Tammany Hall in New York and eventually had enough people in the city to oust the white Protestants and uh, take over uh, city government. And eventually then newer immigrants, uh, Italians and Jews arose who were largely excluded from the Irish and Protestant power centers. 
and elected Fiorella LaGuardia against Tammany in the 1930s, who went on to be the uh, greatest mayor New York has ever seen. In Los Angeles, same start with uh, white Protestants, though, of course, the city's founders were Latinos. Jews started migrating out to L.A. and numbers in the 1930s, some of them to write movies. Blacks uh, began coming in numbers to Los Angeles in the 1940s when because of uh, civil rights uh, activists, uh, the Roosevelt administration required all defense plans, which L.A. uh, was just full of. I mean, there were, you know, uh, we had to fight a Pacific War. Um, and Blacks began flocking to Los Angeles in the 1940s. The city still had white Protestant leadership right up until a Black-Jewish coalition, which began forming really in the late 1950s, 1960s, was able to sweep Tom Bradley into office, where he stayed for 20 years as mayor of L.A. in 1973. So the question which we have to deal with now is, well, what about Latinos? Let me ask you about that. I mean, we know that Antonio Villaraigosa became the first Latino mayor in L.A. in 130 years in 2005. What's the story of Latino power that culminated that year? Well, I want to add one more thing about what established Black power. In the 1960s, the uh, Black community got its first city council member. And by the end of the decade, there were three uh, representing South Central. Blacks were about 16, 17% of the city at the time. The Latino population was there, but much smaller and really began to surge with uh, the economic downturn in Mexico and the civil wars in Central America uh, beginning in the uh, 1980s. And then it grew and grew and grew. Every 10 years, starting in 1990, there would be an informal sit-down between uh, Black political leaders and Latino political leaders on this issue of redistricting, which eventually, for the state legislature and for Congress, uh, the state had mandated that it be done by a nonpartisan commission. That never happened in L.A., L.A. City. It was always the 15 members of the city council figuring the boundaries for the next 10 years of the 15 city council districts. So there was kind of a tacit agreement, which is still held, that Black LA would maintain three districts in South Central. However, since the 1970s, the Black share of LA's population has dropped from the mid-teens to about 8%, and the Latino population has just ballooned so that it's now 48% of the city. Uh, six times larger than the Black population. Crosstown alliances are still possible, and like Tom Bradley, Antonio Villaraigosa would not have been elected had he not gotten the support of the West Side, of which was still heavily Jewish, of much of the San Fernando Valley. Uh, initially, not so much Black LA, um, which had backed uh, Jim Hahn uh, the first time Viragosa ran, uh, largely as a tribute to Jim Hahn's father, who had represented South Central on the Board of Supervisors for 40 years, Kenny Hahn. But eventually, sort of in the absence of serious opposition, Viragosa was able on getting reelected to you know, have support uh, in, among Black voters as well. You note in your piece in the prospect that now every L.A. district represented by blacks on the city council has a Latino majority. And that's also true for every 
district, in the legislature, and in Congress. They all have a Latino plurality, and most of them have a Latino majority. That is huge, and of course it seems unfair to a lot of people. But let's remember that all of these Black and Latino political leaders are all Democrats. There's no Republicans on the on the scene here. So usually we think of redistricting battles as between the two parties. Are there any actual significant political disagreements between Blacks and Latinos uh, on the LA City Council over actual issues? I don't know, minimum wages, affirmative action, anything like that? The short answer is no. They're all pretty much uh, either center-left Democrats or maybe a little to the left of center-left Democrats. There might be uh, differences of emphasis on some police issues, but they're differences of emphasis, not really of, uh, of, of great substance. And so the dividing line, as you said, is not Democratic versus Republican. It's, it's one of ethnic representation. And I, I should add, LA got sort of accustomed to having non-Latinos representing districts at all levels of government in which Latinos were the majority, in part because many of the Latinos in, in recent decades have been immigrants who were not citizens yet or who were undocumented and then had a lower rate of voter participation even when they were citizens and registered voters than Blacks and others in the uh, uh, LA population. So it became kind of an odd way, a norm almost. But what was going on in the meeting from which uh, the tape was recording was for Latinos looking at, among other things, the ethnic division of representation in the coming redistricting, which was in process right while they were having this meeting, and noting that uh, there would be essentially probably four Latinos on the city council and three blacks on the city council, even though, as I said, Latinos outnumbered uh, blacks in the city by a six to one ratio. So that's kind of the starting point. That's the starting point. And we have not yet really talked about what were the crude and sometimes racist comments that provoked such a storm. Everything we've said is kind of normal ethnic competition for political, you know, spoils. Remind us what happened in this conversation that caused such a storm in Los Angeles for the last few days. Basically, if you listen to the whole tape, what you really get is Nuri Martinez unchained. Interestingly, I thought what was interested me most was she was really going after whites whom she perceived as allies of blacks rather than allies of Latinos. So Mike Bonin, the outgoing uh, council uh, member from the West Side, gay, uh, adopted a, uh, a, a black baby. She was going on about how, you know, the, the, treating that baby as an ornament and he should be spanked and beaten and junk like that. I mean, that was the worst part of it because she was almost getting into you know, prescriptions of child abuse <laughs> for a completely innocent little kid. But then uh, as, as, as a side note, uh, going after uh, the LADA, uh, George Gascon, uh, who's a Cuban American, I think, for yes. uh, for being obscenely to you know paraphrase her phrase 
favoring blacks. I think we can abbreviate as F that guy. He's with the blacks. Yeah, yeah. But also going after a non-voting Latino population, the Oaxacans. She ridiculed Oaxacans. I mean, you know, the the uh, white people love Oaxacans. They're, they're, you know, vacation destination, such wonderful food, such such creative crafts. What is it about Oaxacans that makes people like Nuri Martinez look down on them? Well, I don't think they uh, uh, live and vote in her district. Uh, (laughs) It's up around San Fernando. And uh, um, some, you know, remarks about uh, this veiled, I mean, it, it's such a weird phrase, Judeos, that uh, it, it's not even on the, the, the standard list of uh, ethnic slurs towards Jews that I'm aware of. And they're along uh, favoring of, of blacks and redistricting, referring to former state uh, assembly member and L.A. council member Richard Katz, who was on the committee that the council designated to come up with a redistricting plan that Katz was a, a Judeo favoring uh, the, the black community and so on, even as a passing reference to Armenians. In a sense, it was almost an equal opportunity uh, <laughs> yes, race yes. slanderer. And, and one other slander. thing here I want I wanted you to remind us about. Most of the ethnic slurs came from Nuri Martinez. There were three Latino men in this conversation with her, remind us who they were and what their what their political lives have been. The tragedy here is three of these folks, not Nuri Martinez, have at one time or another really been progressive heroes. When uh, De Leon was quite young, uh, he worked for One Stop Immigration, and as Proposition One Eighty Seven uh, was uh, was being campaigned for heavily by the Republicans by incumbent Republican governor then Pete Wilson in And this this was the purpose of 187 was to deny all public services to undocumented immigrants, including public school attendants. Yes, and so many Latino high school students started demonstrating uh, on the streets saying, boy, what a subversive slogan this was. We want to, we want a, a, an education. De Leon organized a citywide demonstration two weeks before the 1994 election, which really is kind of the opening gun, the opening overture, as it were, of the immigrant rights movement in in L.A., in California, and in the United States. So bless him for that. Gil Cedillo came up in the ranks of uh, SEIU uh, and was heading the uh, County Employees Union then, uh, SEIU 660, it was then called. He actually did the very brilliant thing, I reported on this, having been there at the time, of of taking many of those high school students and bringing them into SAU 660, where they were working phone banks against 187 for the last couple of weeks. Gill then went to the state legislature, really, in a sense, the first first personification of the labor-left coalition in LA beating a more centrist candidate in a 1997 special election. And in the legislature for years, he was waging a solitary fight to win driver's licenses for undocumented Californians, and eventually he succeeded. Now he's on the uh, on city council, though he he lost the seat earlier this year in a primary. Uh, Ron Herrera uh, heads a Teamster Local uh, near the harbor, and for years has been uh, an, a strong advocate for the port truckers, who are a miserably exploited group at the harbor. He became also head of the L.A. County Federation of Labor, which is 
the, the AFL-CIO in LA County, which has 800,000 members and uh, prominent and generally viewed as progressive uh, labor leader. So De Leon made a couple comments in the meeting kind of echoing uh, Martinez. Cedillo uh, and Herrera hardly were speaking at all uh, on any of the controversial portions and the racist portions of the tape, uh, but they were there and they you know, clearly didn't tell Martinez to shut up, which would have been the only appropriate response to her uh, stream of invective. So big picture here is the future of the progressive coalition between blacks and Latinos in LA and California and nationally. We're, we're told that a third of Latinos nationally voted for Trump. Of course, that category Latinos includes, it's a very diverse group, Cubans sure. in Florida, Venezuelans, Central Americans, as well as Mexicans who you know, are the great majority in Southern California. Republicans, at least since Nixon, have hope to break the black latino coalition even though when there wasn't very much uh latino participation in it but republicans have always tried to stoke anti-black racism among latinos what can you tell us about the past and the possible future of the progressive alliance of blacks and latinos well we we know that republicans generally are doing well among working class men and there are a lot of latinos who fit that description let me just say doing well does not mean 51 percent among latino working class men it's what in the 30s it's higher than that i think among latino working class men it's closer to 40. Uh, And, you know, some of that is on cultural issues, on issues of gender identity and gay rights and uh, the basics of feminism and, 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 and what have you. But look, there's always been a particularly noxious uh, trend in American politics, which is that a minority group that is somewhat downtrodden, new immigrants, the Irish, the Italians, what have you, one way that they can, in a sense, enter the white mainstream is to adopt the biases of the white mainstream against blacks. We have incidents like uh, the the huge draft riots of Irish Americans in New York City in the middle of the Civil War, in which they killed well over 100 black people chosen more or less at random. The, The notion that if blacks are granted full equality, uh, any advantage going to a uh, a white laborer uh, goes away. So it's sort of economic and it's sort of cultural and it's sort of racist. But, you know, I mean, the whole, the whole slave owner South, the plantation owners, uh, treated working class whites like dirt too, but they gave them this status that, look, you're not black. And look, you're not black has always been a... a, a one of the themes uh, that has poisoned working uh, working class solidarity efforts in the United States. And, um, you know, I suspect while there were many thousands of Latinos, particularly young Latinos, who took part in the demonstrations after George Floyd's murder, uh, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, there were likely, you know, uh, uh, quite a number of working class Latinos who kind of said, well, if Black Lives Matter, what about us? To hell with them. That's a, that's something that's out there. Sad but true. 
So where do we end up with this? I think the the conclusion of your new piece uh, for the prospect at prospect.org is really good. And I'd just like you to read that. City politicos are inherently involved in battles of ethnic succession and never more so than when they're reshaping representation in their own careers through the decennial right of redistricting. That's when racialized politics become personal and may become vicious as well. So long as these hatreds are confined to private meetings in private rooms, we may not fully grasp their existence, but that doesn't mean they don't shape policy decisions. Today, more than ever, with a Republican party and a Republican court bent on winnowing America down to a white person's nation, we need elected officials who can balance support for their own group with genuine support for others. Public officials who can't do that have no business governing, particularly in our increasingly diverse cities where multiracial coalitions are the sine qua non of progressive advances and set the template for national liberal regimes. Those who manifestly can't do that, as Nuri Martinez and her ilk clearly can't, should have no place in government or in the struggle to build a more just and humane society. Harold Meyerson in The American Prospect, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thank you for this. This was an especially important segment. Well, good to be here, John, as always. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The largest private sector nurses' strike in American history took place recently in Minnesota. 15,000 nurses walked off the job for three days in the Twin Cities and the Twin Ports. For comment and analysis, we turn to Bryce Covert. She's an award-winning journalist who reports on the economic issues that affect workers and families. Her work appears in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and New York Magazine, and she's a contributing writer at The Nation. We reached her today at home in Brooklyn. Bryce Covert, welcome back. Thanks for having me back on. Your report for The Nation on the massive Minnesota nurses strike starts on the picket line in Duluth, outside St. Luke's Hospital, at 6.30 in the morning. What did you learn about that picket line? Well, it was a lively picket line from uh, what I was told. There were kids, there were babies, there was a pug, there was a goat. Um, <laughs> lots of folks showed up. Everyone on the sh- on the unit that I of the nurse I spoke to, Emily Niskern, she said everybody showed up and joined in on the strike that day. And lots of other unions came as well. Teachers, other retired nurses. Uh, firefighters, everybody in the community was sort of coming out and supporting, bringing them food. You know, she and the other nurses I spoke to who went on strike as part of this really historic strike in September made it clear that, you know, a picket line can be sort of lively and fun to some extent, but it's not celebratory. They didn't want to be there. They would rather have been inside the hospital serving their patients and taking good care of them. But they all really feel pushed past their breaking point and felt that it was really important to make a statement. So 
that's what they were doing in early September. The nurse who you referred to, Emily Niskern, told you in a very eloquent sentence why they were striking. How did she put it? Yeah, she said, you strike so you don't quit. She's a single parent. She got choked up when she was telling me about the financial hit that she was expecting to take. She couldn't buy her teenage daughter new shoes at the start of the school year because she was going to be losing that income. Um, But she just felt so strongly about the need to strike because she felt that she was not able to do her best work and give her best care under current conditions at her hospital. She told me a story that I just have to share because it was so harrowing and moving to me. She said, the worst shift I've ever worked as a a nurse was in August. She works on labor and delivery and with mothers and infants. And she was a charge nurse and she had to call up women who were scheduled to be induced and have their labor started at their doctor's orders and tell them, we don't have enough staff. You can't come in. Mm. If you're high risk or something seems like it's going wrong, you can come in, but all we can do is put you in a room and monitor you. We won't be able to start your delivery. And um, as someone who had her labor induced, uh, that really struck a chord. And it just is to show the issue that all of these nurses are protesting and many, many thousands of nurses have been protesting in the pandemic, which is it's all about staffing levels. It's all about feeling like they don't have the staff and the resources to do the jobs well that they're supposed to be doing. And striking nurses in Minnesota and lots of other places have one genuinely radical demand beyond adequate staffing. They're asking for veto power over management staffing decisions. And that one drives management crazy. Yeah, management and a lot of these hospitals have been pushing back on bargaining over ratios. There was another strike that was about to happen in Michigan and then was called off because they were able to come to an agreement. But that wasn't even over the conditions that, that they wanted in their contract. That was a, would have been an unfair labor practice strike because management was refusing at the University of Michigan hospital to bargain at all over staffing levels or staffing ratios, saying that they didn't have to. So that's the kind of pushback they've gotten. And, you know, what nurses are saying is this is the most important part of our work and our jobs. This is at the core of whether we can do our job. We need a say. Hospitals are having a hard time staffing and the pandemic has certainly presented a lot of issues. Uh, But what they're saying is, you know, things have gotten a little bit better than the early pandemic. And these emergency measures that were put in place, these low staffing levels, have not improved. It's time to improve them. The big picture here is that nurses' strikes can be effective for the simple reason that their work can't be outsourced to China or Mexico or South Carolina. Uh, But nurses' strikes are emotionally intense events because, I mean, as you've suggested, striking nurses are not taking care of their patients. That's hard on the patients, but it's also hard on the nurses. It absolutely is. And every time I've talked to a nurse who either was considering going on strike or was on strike, they said they did. that's not what they wanted to be doing. They wanted to be inside taking care of their patients. Most of them have really deep relationships with the community and the patients they care for. Um, you know, hospitals will bring in replacements during strikes sometimes, but those people don't necessarily know the patient population, know what's going on with the patients inside. It's, it's somewhat harrowing for them. They do not want to leave the bedside, but they have been so 
pushed past the limit in the pandemic, that so much has been demanded of them and very little, little given in return, that they are en masse taking these actions. It's been all across the country, strike actions, protests, unionization votes, you know, nurses are mobilized right now. I think they see both the that everyone knows their value in the after the pandemic. We all got to see the work they do and how important it is. But that hasn't then been followed up with the treatment that they deserve. And certainly wages are a part of that. They would like higher pay, especially with inflation being what it is. But honestly, the number one concern over and over again is staffing, is just having enough staff on hand to take care of patients. St. Luke's Duluth is a nonprofit and has been since it was founded in 1881, I learned from their website, but it is a private sector hospital. That means it's not operated by the city or the county. It's a nonprofit, yet it seems to be acting according to the dictates of profit. Yeah, and I think that's true for a lot of hospitals right now. The University of Michigan nurses I talked to as well said the same of their hospital, that it's also technically a nonprofit but that about a decade ago, it changed its name and its practices to look more like the corporate hospitals that it competes with. You know, they're benchmarking against each other and they are, feel a lot of pressure to cut down on costs, to increase their budgets, even if they're a nonprofit. Healthcare, as we all know, healthcare in America is expensive, but they are so focused, I think, on profit over patients in basically any kind of hospital you're going into. And they see nurses, unfortunately, as a cost, even though there's plenty of evidence and plenty of research that adding more nurses and investing in the work that they do saves you lots of money on the other end. You have fewer deaths, you have fewer people returning to the hospital after they've been there. But that's just not how these hospitals see it. And so they keep cutting down on staffing. Well, management responds to nursing strikes by hiring something called travel nurses. I've heard that travel nurses make a lot of money. Please explain how this works. Travel nurses have become really big in the pandemic. And basically hospitals, when they haven't had enough staff on hand among their own staff, have hired out from basically anywhere, nurses that will come to them and fill in spots and they pay a really high premium. And to some extent, it makes sense. You know, you're asking someone to come into a potential crisis situation far from home um, and step in and do the work. I think what's hard for the nurses who are already on staff is they're doing the same work alongside these travel nurses and making a fraction of, this, of the pay that the travel nurses are getting. And they're saying, look, it's not that I don't think they deserve to have high pay, but don't I deserve more recognition for the work I'm here doing and have been doing before. Um, so there is a lot of pushback right now among nurses to say, look, you know, let's rely less on expensive travel nurses and invest in the nurses you've got. The Minnesota nurses strike, just to repeat, the largest private sector nursing strike in American history, ended September 15th as planned after three days. Uh, that's more than two weeks ago. Has there been any progress reported in the negotiations? Do you know? So last I had heard, there had not been movement for management, although talks had resumed the week after the strike. So I don't know that anything has actually come out of that one yet. I think we'll have to see and it's possible things are going on behind the scenes. 
So we don't know uh, anything about a settlement in Minnesota. We do know what happened in Michigan, where 96% of nurses voted to authorize the strike. That was the one that, as you said, was settled without a strike. What can you tell us about the new contract that nurses won in Michigan? You know, it's interesting. I think that we see a lot of movement with the strike authorization vote, even without an actual strike. So before the agreement was reached, the hospital got back to me with a comment and said that what it had offered at that time was a 6% raise in the first year and 5% to the next three, and what it called expanded staffing guidelines. I don't know what that is, but we already knew that they were refusing at the time to bargain over staffing ratios. In the agreement that they eventually came to after the strike authorization vote, there are enforceable nurse to patient ratios. We don't know exactly what they are because they vary by unit, but the university could face fines if it doesn't comply with them. And also much bigger wage increases. There's a seven and a half percent raise this year, a six percent raise next year, and five percent the year after. So I think you really see in that the effects that the nurses had by, you know, coming together and voting overwhelmingly to authorize a strike. They also got an end to mandatory overtime, something that came up a lot, which is for those unfamiliar, I was not management forcing them to work overtime hours because they were short staffed, um, which can be really dangerous if they're working longer than they feel their bodies are ready to do, as well as a $5,000 bonus upon ratification and a $2,000 retention bonus, which again gets back to staffing. You know, they kept saying to me, wages and bonuses are deeply tied to staffing issues. If you're not paying well and if you're not paying people to stay, they're going to leave. They're going to leave the field or they'll go to better paying hospitals. Uh, so we talked mostly here about Minnesota and Michigan. Lots of other stories of nursing strikes in Los Angeles where, where we record this show. There have been a lot of action by nursing unions. 1,400 registered nurses at USC hospitals struck for two days in July. Also in LA, 1,000 nurses held a one-day strike at Kaiser hospitals in June. Inadequate staffing was the issue. 2,000 healthcare workers held a three-day strike in May at Cedars-Sinai. This was not registered nurses. This was certified nursing assistants, surgical technicians, transporters, and other hospital workers. They have many of the same issues as the registered nurses. They've been suffering burnout from understaffing, and they, they were worried a lot about health hazards during the pandemic. And then one of the biggest 7,000 nurses in June authorized the strike at four hospitals run by LA County, but it was one of those where the strike was called off at the last minute because the uh, county agreed to cut back on mandatory overtime. Most of these are led by National Nurses United, the largest nursing union. A couple of them in LA were led by the SEIU. Uh, let's talk a little about the nursing unions. I know National Nurses United was a big force in the Bernie campaigns of both 2016 and 2020, arguing for uh, Medicare for all. Yeah, National Nurses United has been behind a lot of these strikes. They were behind the big strike in Minnesota. They represented all of those 15,000 nurses who went on the three-day strike. Um, and they are an interesting union. You know, they obviously are pushing for what nurses want on the ground, you know, better staffing, better treatment and pay. 
but they also really push for larger scale changes. Like you said, the big one I think is Medicare for all. They are all in on Medicare for all. And, you know, the nurses I spoke to connect their issues back to that. This is a healthcare system that's not working for a lot of people. It's very expensive. If we had a better working system, there would be less pressure on hospitals to constantly be cutting nurses ranks and maybe a little bit more room to pay them better and treat them better. So I think it's an interesting union in that it takes a, a little bit of a broader lens on the issues facing its membership. So it's the real underlying problem here that there are not enough nurses in the United States. That's what some people say. I, w- I would push back a bit. You know, I think that nurses, a lot of them would say that it's not actually that we have a nursing shortage. And there are a steady number of people coming out and getting their nursing certifications every year. That number actually continues to increase and has not actually decreased. What happens is that nurses just refuse to work under these conditions. Certainly in the pandemic, like you said, we saw many people just leave the field. It was such an extreme workload mentally, physically, Um, emotionally, that a lot of people just said, I can't do this anymore. But that's been going on for some time. Nurses have been burned out for a long, long time. So if we don't treat them better and keep them in their jobs, then that's what's creating the shortage. They are basically sort of taking on themselves, trying to fix the system so that they can give better care. A lot of what they would like to see is to have this legislated, to have staffing ratios enshrined in law so that they don't have to go on strike just to have enough people, you know, bodies in the room to take care of the patients who show up. California has staffing ratios. There's been debates in other states over it as well, but the hospital association and those lobbies really push back very hard and have a lot of money. So it doesn't move forward as much. But if we did that, then nurses wouldn't have to take it upon themselves to go on strike and they could just focus on doing the job that they were trained to do. Bryce Covert, you can read her report on nursing strikes at thenation.com. Starts with that quote, you strike so you don't have to quit. Bryce, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, it was great. same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The murder of Emma Till in Mississippi in 1955 is probably the most famous lynching in American history. Now there's a novel about it, sort of. It's a wild comic novel. The author is Percival Everett. It's called The Trees, and it's really good. How is it possible to write a comic novel about a lynching? For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has about 3 million listeners. We reached him today at home in Pasadena. Hi, John. Hello, John. Well, the story of Emma Till is known to millions of students who watched episode one of the documentary Eyes on the Prize. It's been shown in classrooms everywhere for a couple of decades now, including mine at UC Irvine. The story as told there starts at the Tallahatchie River in a small town with the unlikely name of Money, Mississippi. 
Here, the narrator Julian Bond says, the body of Emma Till was found way down in the waters. Two local men were arrested and charged with the murder. They were white. Emma Till, of course, was black. He was from Chicago. He had come to money to visit his relatives. The white woman who worked in a store said he had grabbed her and was menacing, but in 2017, she told historian Timothy Tyson that was not true. The body was shipped home back north to Chicago, where the boy's mother, Mamie Till Bradley, insisted on an open casket funeral. Jet magazine showed Till's corpse, beaten, mutilated, shot through the head. A generation of black people would remember the horror of that photo. In The New Yorker recently, Julian Lucas explained the deeper significance of that photo in Jet magazine. Photos of the lynched bodies of black men and of the white crowds who watched were distributed widely on postcards uh, throughout the South. These images functioned as weapons of white supremacist terror. But Mamie Till's decision to hold an open casket viewing of her maimed son galvanized millions against segregation and lynching. She reappropriated her son's death from his killers who had intended it as an act of intimidation. And she turned that image into an act of defiance, inviting press photographers and crowds of strangers to, in her words, let the world see what they did to my boy. Meanwhile, back in Money, Mississippi, Roy Bryant, husband of the woman in the store, and, and J.W. Milam, her brother-in-law, were arrested for the murder of Emma Till. At their trial, it took an all-white jury one hour to find the men not guilty. A couple months later, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam told their story of how they had murdered Emma Till to a reporter named William Bradford Huey. He paid them $4,000 for their story, which appeared in Look magazine. That was one of more than 500 documented lynchings in Mississippi alone, and now Percival Everett has made that story the basis of a wild comic novel. How does he make it funny? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a natural thing to make funny, but I think as often happens in Everett's case, what he didn't want to do was to make it too earnest or protest novelly. It's, it's, it's like a comic police story in a way. You, it's, set in the, in present, it's set in the present, and what happens is there's a crime. Two white guys, or actually one guy first, is killed, his throat is slit, he's castrated, and his testicles are in the hand of a black body that somehow just happens to be there. And it turns out that the first two white victims are the sons of the two men who murdered Emmett Till. So maybe this is some kind of revenge killing. Now, how does that make it funny? On the face of it, it doesn't sound like it's funny. Yet from the opening lines, He's making fun of the town of Money, Mississippi, and making fun of the people who are killed, who are the stereotypical or beyond stereotypical kind of, quote, redneck, unquote, people. That, in fact, the whole thing is portrayed as a kind of comic, dark comic farce about the murder of people. And why would you do this? I think that his sense was that everybody has been feels beaten by stories of lynching and, and, and black people being murdered. So it almost doesn't register as much as it might. I think what he's trying to do is use comedy in telling this story to somehow knock us out of our received sense of how you would look at this. 
And one way you make it funny is that you treat the white people with the kind of derisive contempt that black people were often portrayed in, in Hollywood movies. You know, so they're kind of like white, it, it, I, I don't like the term white trash, but, it, but in this case, it kind of fits white trash minstrelsy, if you can see it. The white, <laughs> the white people are like the worst case comical scenario of those people. And therefore, to make it comical, you can, they're slightly dehumanized in that way, um, which, which makes it funny. Now, at first might seem like a police procedural. You have the the small town sheriff with his dim sidekick trying to solve it. And then you have two members of the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, both black, who are quite jocular and bicker like in in a a cop buddy movie as as they're looking into the case. And then you have a a kind of disaffected FBI agent who became an FBI agent because she knew how much... her, her progressive parents would hate it, and she gets involved in it. And what happens is that it's, it's, it is kind of a farce or a, a, a buffoonish version of a serious thing. And it does have the effect, weirdly enough, of, make you, of making you think about things in a slightly different way. And there's one other notable white character, the woman who accused Emmett Till yes. is now a very elderly granny. She is filled with regret and remorse. You no, know, she is filled with regret and remorse. She's known she's done all this. To, and in fact, she's not murdered. There's a strange forgiveness. I mean, she, she does die, but, but it, there is a strange forgiveness to her in the sense that she's not brutally murdered because she owned up to it and felt shame and horror for the past. So she doesn't actually have to be punished in quite the same way because she's internally punishing herself. This is actually the true part of this otherwise yes. wildly imaginative novel. Yes. The, the accuser did, close to her death, admit that she had lied and yes. we assume did so remorsefully and apologetically. Yes, no, I think so. You know, so so, and and the thing about it is that there are so many farcical and kind of cop story elements to it. Yet, I mean, I remember there's a famous George Bernard Shaw line about, or not, it's not a famous, a not very famous George Bernard Shaw line, where he says that the privilege of joking in public should only be reserved to very serious people, oh. and and you know, it's a, a classic Shaw paradox. But in fact. This is a serious book. And one of the ways you know it's a serious book is you're reading them. They're filled with jokes and, 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 and clever lines. You're like, I think one of them, dead is the new black, you know, which is, you know, it just, you know, it, it's filled with great lines, great jokes, funny dialogue. Yet occupying almost the dead center of the novel is something that comes up where a researcher comes down from the north and meets up with a woman named Mama Z who's been keeping records of all the lynching, murdered black people. And in the middle of this novel, suddenly you just get page after page just of names. And these are all people who actually were murdered. The, the, you know, and the center of the book is the list of all of these names, names you don't know, but just kind of reminding you in the center of all this, this is something that is widespread, has been going on an incredibly long time. And that this is what the book is about. It's, it's about these people and all the stuff spinning wildly around it is an attempt to make us notice this. And I want to go back to the testicles in the hand of the dead black man who might be Emma Till. Of course, 
this was something that the white lynchers often did to black yes. men, often accused of having sex or so-called yes. raping uh, white women. Here, the black killer apparently has castrated his white victims, kind of turning the tables on yeah. a familiar story. Yes, it is. You know, it's it's a symbolic reversal, and and, and, a, and a, so essentially what what happens through the book is wherever there are cases where someone has has been has been lynched or 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 race killed in this book, you do find the kind of symbolic reenactment with the white body and the black body because the, the and they're bound together. And of course, it's a huge thing because there are so many cases. And in fact, you know, there are even some Chinese people along the way. And it's not just Mississippi. You know, in your home state of Minnesota, I think there is, you know, there, there, there is an example, isn't there? In the 1924, there was a lynching in Duluth, Minnesota of yeah. three black men. And this appears very briefly, but very, very obviously in Percival Everett's book. It's not just in Mississippi that yes. black men were lynched for accu on accusations made by white women. It was even in Minnesota and in Orange County, California, yeah. the lynching victims are Asians. Yeah. Now, what's, what's interesting in it is that, as I mentioned earlier, the book has the shape of some sort of thing where you're going to solve the crime. Now, gradually, of course, the cops realize the crime is so vast. And then I can't say what happens, but 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 it even changes it changes it to an, an even spookier turn by the end, and and, and a turn of vengeance. It must be it, it must be said, or or at least ju justice, which probably is attached to vengeance in this particular case. And the book, in some kind of ways, almost explodes. The crime is so vast that you can't solve it as a crime. You can't contain it all within the book. That there's no resolution that you can possibly propose to it in this book. There's no crime solving. There's no hero that can do it. And, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, once again, that's a, a, using the method of fiction to suggest the vastness of this, while at the same time, I think, knowing that readers want to be entertained. The kind of pop dimension of this book, which makes it so pleasurable, is that it's giving you this horrible stuff, and yet at the same time, you don't feel ground down or beaten down. James Baldwin wrote about the problem with, with a certain kind of protest novel is that it's telling you something that you know and then making you feel awful about it and yet nothing comes of it. Yeah. Everett's whole career is something different to that. We live in a time when the representation of oppression the, and the representation of the black body is a highly controversial, contested and troubled issue. Percival Everett is a brave man to step into these yes. waters. How does he do it? I remember once interviewing a, a dissident Polish director and I said, um, your book, your films are quite funny. And he said, yes, I smile through clenched teeth. And I think as you read this book, which is very funny, the rage that comes through is so powerful. And this is the way that he channels his rage in the way that you know someone like Ishmael Reed might, might challenge his rage. This is how he focuses it, focuses it. Now the representation of the black body here in this particular case, it shifts off to the white body. The black body is there, but it's now having done to it what the black body had done to it. It's shocking to us to read it. And it's especially shocking to the white people in the novel. For them, this is, this is like something out of this world that, that you would actually just be killed for seemingly no reason. 
have your body mutilated and your testicles cut off. And in some cases, you haven't done anything. You've been the son of somebody who did something. But that's sufficient. And of course, in the case of so many lynchings, that was what was sufficient. Somebody decided that's sufficient, and this happens to you. And the shock and horror of the white people at, at, at this going on in the novel is, is, is quite powerful. Well, we're two white guys here talking about this. I think, think, we, okay. I think that's yeah. pretty and, clear. Yes, and it's pretty clear. I, I, I'm not giving it away. You know, I mean, this isn't a spoiler. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I've been a writer for a long time. And, and part of, I think, white privilege as a writer is that you don't ever have to worry about your whiteness. It is just yes. there, so you never have to make it a theme. My book isn't about being white. It's about being human. Whereas for so many African-American and, and, and probably and Asian and Latino writers, you, know, you are stuck with people expect you to or want you to, to deal with being black. And how does Percival Everett deal with this expectation among readers? Percival Everett has, from the very beginning, I think, taken on the freedom that a white writer would automatically assume which is he wants to write about what he wants to write about in the way that he wants to write about it. And what that means is he's, he writes books about brilliant babies, and he writes books about university professors. He writes linguistically complex things. He writes about detectives who are Black, but he never plays up the fact they're Black. He inhabits their Blackness, but it, it's not the point of the book. It's just there in the book. In this particular case, I think the Trump years drove him slightly insane. I, don't, I mean, I don't know him at all. I think that somehow, I mean, Trump who appears in the novel, but the, the, the Trump years drove him insane enough that he wrote in some ways his most overt novel about this. But in fact, his way has always been cool and funny. He, he channels anger into wit. And I think that, that's what happens in this particular case. I mean, what I think is important about him is that he's been able to escape in a way that lots, that lots of, lots of African American writers have, I think, have felt trapped. Even in his personal life, he likes hunting and fishing and, and horseback riding. That doesn't sound like an African American writer. He has basically taken the freedom that a white guy like me actually just got for. I, it didn't take. It didn't cost me anything to get it. I got it for free. He's actually, I think, claimed it for himself. And so I think that's how he's gotten so daring in this particular book, you know, in the same way as he was daring in his book Erasure, where he made fun of some of the books that Oprah was putting on her TV show, books like Precious, that were kind of filled with not very well-written stories of, of Black misery, ignorance, and crime. We should say one other thing about Percival Everett. He is phenomenally productive and active as a writer. He's written 22 other novels and a total of something like 44 books. He basically writes one of these a year. But one last thing, why is this book called The Trees? Okay, well, I think there, there are at least three reasons why it's called The Trees. Reason one is trees are what lynched people are hung from. So that's just starting at the most literal level, it's about, about lynching. The second one is it's about, I think, family trees. You know, in the sense that, you know, that you're killing the, the branches of the people who actually did the initial killing of Emmett Till. And then the third, I think, is a play on the idea of the forest and the trees. I think we all know the forest of lynching and somehow it seems so vast to us and indistinguishable. And yet I think for him, the trees are like you start with the Emmett Till case, other people who were killed figure. And then the list of names in the middle, those are trees. 
they actually have names, they have identities, they listed. The woman Mama Z, who's keeping the list of all of them, is keeping those trees alive because it's so easy to blur it all. Oh, yes, the tragic history of lynching in America. But in each case, it's somebody whose body has been destroyed and probably humiliated while being destroyed and then deliberately desecrated afterwards. It is a forest trees, I mean, and the trees and family trees, which is a very Percival Everett thing to do. John Powers. The novel is The Trees. The author is Percival Everett. John, thanks for talking with us today. Okay, my pleasure. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.